do they still treat me like a child? Ooh. Aunt Flora and Fauna and Meriwether. They never want me to meet anyone. <laughs> but you know something? say goodbye, he takes me in his arms, and then I wake up. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. everyone, I'm Emma. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 245, Sleeping Beauty. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you are a regular returning listener, whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. Now that it is five years old, I am so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of Sleeping Beauty the final episode of animation season 2024. So what that means is every year, January, February, every year, I like to solely look at animated films, a wide variety of animated films from all of the studios, all of the visual mediums. And this year has been eclectic, shall we say. So huge thank you to everyone who listened to those episodes. We started off with Wally and then went into How to Train Your Dragon, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Nimona, The Black Cauldron, Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas, The Emoji Movie, and most recently, Mars Needs Moms. And now we have the final episode of Animation Season, which is Sleeping Beauty. Now, the last few episodes that I've done have technically been flops. So whether that's a commercial flop or whether that is a critical flop, and Sleeping Beauty was intended to be a moving illustration. Disney's lavish, beautiful and expensive third princess movie. A movie where the princess isn't actually the main character at all. That introduces one of Disney's most iconic villains. And a movie that would cost the studio both literally and figuratively. Here's a trailer for Sleeping Beauty. Fair Aurora, 
sparkling with colorful spectacles, brimming with gay music and delightful new songs, filled with fascinating new Disney characters. I wonder, I wonder. You'll meet lovely Princess Briar Rose. I wonder why each little bird has a song. handsome Prince Philip, and Samson, his noble steed. You'll meet the most delightful fairies who ever wafted a magic wand. Flora. Follow me. Fauna. And Merryweather. You'll share the fun with King Stephen and King Hubert. <laughs> and you'll see Maleficent work her wondrous witchcraft. Stand back, you fools! The fine art of animation becomes magnificent entertainment as Walt Disney brings one of the world's favorite stories to the screen. It's filled with magical fun. It's spectacular in its beauty. And there's adventure to excite every emotion. management of this theater is proud to recommend this magnificent motion picture to every member of every family everywhere. As the kingdom celebrates the birth of the Princess Aurora, a trio of friendly fairies bestow gifts upon the newborn. But the celebration is interrupted by the arrival of the uninvited Maleficent, who curses Aurora to prick her finger on a spinning wheel spindle and die before sunset on her 16th birthday. The fairy Merryweather softens the curse, so instead of dying, Aurora will sleep until true love's kiss awakens her. Desperate to keep Aurora safe from Maleficent's plot, the fairies adopt and raise her while living in a woodcutter's cottage in the forest, while the king orders all spinning wheels to be destroyed. On her 16th birthday, Aurora, now named Briar Rose to keep her safe, meets a mysterious stranger in the woods and falls in love. But as she's now of age, she needs to return to the castle to become a princess. Annoyed that her plan has failed, Maleficent lures Aurora to prick her finger on a spinning wheel spindle and Aurora collapses into sleep. The fairies and her betrothed Prince Philip must face Maleficent if the prince is to break her spell and bestow true love's kiss on the sleeping Aurora. Let's, as always, run through the cast. We have Mary Costa as Princess Aurora. 
Bill Shirley as Prince Philip, Eleanor Audley as Maleficent, Verna Felton as Flora, Barbara Jo Allen as Fauna, Barbara Nuddy as Merriweather, Taylor Holmes as King Stefan, and Bill Thompson as King Hubert. Sleeping Beauty has a story by Erdman Penner, Joe Rinaldi, Winston Hibbler, Bill Pete, Ted Sears, Ralph Wright and Milt Banter, was directed by Clyde Geronimi, Wolfgang Reitherman, Eric Larson and Les Clark, and is based on Sleeping Beauty by Charles Perrault. Way back in 1938, Walt Disney began thinking about creating an animated version of Sleeping Beauty. It had been a long-time dream of Disney to bring Sleeping Beauty to life, and while production didn't start in 1938, Disney would register it as a planned production title in January 1950, a month before Cinderella released to hugely positive commercial and critical success. And just like Cinderella, Disney took inspiration from a Charles Perrault fairy tale for his Sleeping Beauty. But Perrault's version wasn't the first. Stories of a young maiden who falls into an enchanted sleep go back to the early 14th century. But none of those were actually published until 1528. But it was the Italian fairy tale Sun, Moon and Talia by Giambattista Basili that's cited as the first instance of the fable. In this version, the Sleeping Beauty is Talia. The story is pretty dark and it involves a king finding the sleeping Talia and, quote, gathering the first fruits of love, unquote, gross, and Talia becoming pregnant in her sleep, giving birth to twins, a boy and a girl, sun and moon. The story also includes the eating of children, which is delightful. Anyway, Basili's version would go on to inspire Charles Perrault, a story which thankfully doesn't include him gathering those first fruits of love while she's sleeping in his revised story of 1697, but does include an evil mother-in-law who wants to eat children. And this would be the tale Disney would primarily base their story on, but more inspiration than copying it exactly. Can you imagine King Hubert wanting to eat his future grandchildren? No, me neither. After Perrault, the Brothers Grimm included a variant of Sleeping Beauty called Little Briar Rose in the first volume of Children's and Household Tales, published in 1812. Disney would pay homage to this version by having Aurora take the name Briar Rose while she's raised undercover by the fairies. This would be the Disney Studios' third princess movie after Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Cinderella, but this would be an animated feature like no other, and for Walt Disney personally, he considered this to be his potential masterpiece and planned to pool as many resources at the studio as possible to bring his vision to life. By the late 1950s, the studio was in reasonably good financial shape and so he decided to pour the resources necessary into making Sleeping Beauty special. This wasn't going to be an easy task as Sleeping Beauty could have appeared to just be the third in a series of three films, beginning with Snow White and Cinderella but he believed he could bring Sleeping Beauty to new heights, largely because his staff were far more skilled and practised than they had been in the earlier days. But it was a lengthy vision, marred by Walt Disney's attention to detail and the fact Disney himself had other things going on, including hosting the Walt Disney's Disneyland TV show, overseeing production on other movies, and a little idea called Disneyland, which would preoccupy Walt Disney for several years before it would open in 1955. But we're going to come back to Disneyland and how it served as promotional material for Sleeping Beauty a little bit later. But first, they needed to work on a compelling story. 
a story that differentiated it from Snow White and Cinderella. The second half of Perrault's fairy tale was discarded, describing the princess's life post her secret marriage to a prince whose mother is of ogre lineage. The princess bears the prince two children that her mother-in-law wishes to cook and eat, but a kind-hearted cook substitutes the children for a lamb and a goat. And that's kind of a good job considering this is a family movie. The Disney story would end with True Love's First Kiss, a Disney idea that's not present in any version of the story and the happy ever after of the princess and her prince. The earliest known version of Disney's Sleeping Beauty was written in April 1951, where four fairies existed. Tranquility, Fernadelle, Merryweather and Maleficent. Their roles were significantly enhanced as time went on, leading to all four becoming major characters in the finished product, but with slightly different names and roles. The princess in this version was kept captive in the castle and would end up switching clothes with the servant girl and escape into the forest where she would meet the prince. Her sleep would be extended for years and the prince would return from a faraway land to fight Maleficent to awaken her. But in 1952, Walt Disney rejected this story, saying it was too close in tone to Snow White and Cinderella. They went back to the drawing board, but retained some of the ideas, including the prince and princess meeting randomly in the forest. The fairies were renamed Flora, Fauna and Merryweather, but plans for them to rule each of their domains, animals, plants and weather respectively, were removed because Walt Disney felt it took away from the central premise of the movie. The princess was named Aurora and the prince was named Philip, reportedly after the real Prince Philip, the prince consort of Queen Elizabeth II. Mary Costa would be cast as Aurora in 1952 after she was heard singing at a dinner party and invited to audition by the man sitting next to her, who happened to be Walter Schumann, Disney's musical director. They had spent years trying to find the right voice and Walt Disney knew she was it as soon as he heard her. Originally, she was going to be the singing voice as they wanted an English-accented princess, but Costa loved doing English accents and despite her strong southern accent, she proved she could maintain an English one with ease. She would take three years to record her lines, as at any time the slightest expression changed in animation, Costa would be invited to redo the lines. Walt Disney would encourage her to paint with her voice, and Aurora's lead animator Mark Davis would watch her recordings and sketch her gestures and expressions. For Prince Philip, they wanted a voice actor who complimented Mary Costa. Twenty singers auditioned, but Bill Shirley was chosen for his baritone voice and operatic experience. Although they would use living model Helen Stanley as the model for Aurora's animation, her mannerisms were based on Mary Costa. Walt Disney wanted a, quote, moving illustration, unquote, and Audrey Hepburn's influence was also present in Aurora's look and style. Davis had worked with Grim Natwick on Snow White and was directing animator for Cinderella. Davis would state that the live-action footage was only ever for reference purposes and was never used for rotoscoping. In a unique design role, Davis was also responsible for creating the artistic vision behind Maleficent, the self-appointed mistress of all evil, in addition to directing the animation of Princess Aurora. Davis experimented with flame-like shapes and triangular colour patterns in his artwork, which were influenced by a religious painting found in a Czechoslovakian art book. Maleficent's flowing robes have a reptilian quality, hinting at the dragon that the evil fairy will eventually transform herself into. Davis based Maleficent's headdress on goat horns and the material framing her face on bat wings. The character was redesigned several times. Initial versions of Maleficent were round-faced and featured a pair of antennae and 50s cartoon Martian green skin. 
Eleanor Audley, who'd previously voiced Lady Tremaine, Cinderella's stepmother in Cinderella, was suggested as the voice of Maleficent by Disney himself. She initially refused as she had tuberculosis in the early 50s and wasn't sure she would be well enough to voice the character. But considering the movie took nine years to make, she reconsidered when she felt better and basically made one of the most iconic Disney villains of all time. When Angelina Jolie took the role of the live-action Maleficent in 2014, she studied Audley's vocalisations and was initially hesitant about the role because Audley was such a commanding presence just by the power of her voice. But Audley didn't just voice the character. She also provided reference scenes for Mark Davis to animate. It was a fully absorbing performance from Audley, who even fully dressed in costume for the role. But as I'm going to come to, although Disney released images of Audley in costume, she wasn't the only one. And while Maleficent's backstory has since been changed from out-and-out villain to misunderstood anti-hero, there's no denying that she is the star of the show in this movie. She's also one of Disney's first instances of a queer-coded villain, something that would continue in characters like Ursula and Scar. It was long rumoured that Maleficent's likeness was inspired by actress Mayla Nurmi, best known for her character Vampyra, a camp icon of the 1950s. But until recently, it was just that, a rumour. Vampyra fans have long noted the unmistakable similarity between Nurmi's bone structure and character makeup and Disney's most popular villain. The Disney animators would have been quite familiar with the Vampyra character, which became a local smash hit in Los Angeles, from the moment it took to the air, despite it never really reaching popularity elsewhere. It only lasted 50 episodes from 1954 to 1955. Reportedly, the character of Vampyra was inspired by Morticia Adams and, ironically, the evil queen from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. But recently, this rumour has been substantiated. Diary entries were found in 2014, written by Nermi, detailing secret modelling sessions for Walt Disney in November 1956 and specifically referenced Jack Lavin, Sleeping Beauty's casting director, although Lavin's paperwork never referenced Mayla Nurmi. A wider search of Disney's historical records was undertaken, and the Disney archives were subsequently found to include Nurmi's participation as Maleficent's live-action reference model. At the time, she was also shooting Edward's infamous Plan 9 from outer space. She did two days' work for Edward and two days' work for Walt Disney. Basically, one of the quote-unquote worst films ever made, and the other something she'd never received credit for in her lifetime. Nermi died in 2008, aged 85, and her story is fascinating, especially when you get into her later life and her lawsuit and long-running feud with Elvira. But that is a story for a completely different episode. One of the key figures in shaping the post-war Disney style was conceptual artist Mary Blair, whose extraordinarily simple yet striking concept art for Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan impressed Walt Disney enormously. Disney was disappointed that her distinct style was watered down in the animation process, losing much of what made her work so special. To save this for Sleeping Beauty, Walt Disney appointed stylist Avon Dirl as production designer because he was determined to make Sleeping Beauty a Disney animated feature unlike any other. Earl combined pre-Renaissance, Italian and Gothic French influences with his own abstract style of realism to create the formalised elegance and stylish design seen in Sleeping Beauty. And Disney was determined that this style remain intact. This was a radical departure from early Disney animated features. Some of the backgrounds that Earl painted in his signature style were 15 feet long. 
This allowed him to create sumptuously stylized panoramas. To give the characters an Earl flair, animation artist Tom Oreb expertly blended the strong horizontal and vertical planes of the background into the character design. Sequence director Eric Larson remembered the deliberate attempt to aim for the ultimate sleeping beauty. Walt Disney tasked the more than 300 technicians and artists that did work on Sleeping Beauty with creating an original piece of art for every frame. The assistant animators had to adhere to strict guidelines, including the precise thickness of the pencil lines due to the character's complex stylization. One entire day was needed to produce one perfected drawing. The Disney Paint Lab created new colours using additives to give the pigments a glow on screen never seen in any previous animated film. Avindel had unprecedented control over Sleeping Beauty's styling, backgrounds and colour because Walt Disney wanted a unified look and the visual style of one designer. He created about 300 visual development paintings, hundreds of small scene sketches and dozens of key background paintings. Over 800 other backgrounds in the film were created by animators working under Earl's supervision and following his style to maintain consistency in the film's design. It was Earl's lavish design that inspired the idea to film Sleeping Beauty in Super Technorama 70 using 70mm film instead of the standard 35mm. The timeline's going to go a bit back and forth, so apologies for that. In 1952, Disney planned to start production in 1953 and release in 1955. But when I say this movie was lavish, I mean lavish. I mentioned in the episode on The Black Cauldron, about that movie's use of the 70mm Super Technorama widescreen, and Sleeping Beauty was the first ever use of Super Technorama 70. This proved to create huge difficulties for the animators and layout artists, who had to work with huge sheets of paper and twice as much art as normal had to be drawn to fill the frame. Sleeping Beauty was also the last hand-inked Disney animated feature, so all of those huge cells were hand-inked too. So a two-year turnaround was a bit of a pipe dream, by the time 1954 came about, it was moved to a release in February 1957, then December 1957, and then because most of the studio was working on Sleeping Beauty, they were diverted to work on other projects, including work on the Disneyland theme park and the TV shows. And in July 1954, production on Sleeping Beauty was suspended. It resumed in December 1956 with a new release date of Christmas 1958. But the blame for the many delays was mostly due to the perceived disinterest of Disney himself. He had a lot of things going on, and his attention had shifted from Sleeping Beauty to the Disneyland theme park. Although Earl's paintings inspired the layout artists and animators, the use of a style that many deemed too cold, flat and modernist for a fairy tale feature demoralised those layout artists and animators. Character animation was hampered by the character's design and colour styling, which made it difficult for animators to make the characters which had to be stylized to fit Earl's aesthetic and stand out against his intricate background paintings. Supervising director Clyde Geronimi had creative differences with Earl, mostly because the backgrounds were beautiful, but he felt that Disney valued the look more than the story, which is probably not an incorrect assumption at this stage. Geronimi also replaced one of the nine old men, Eric Larson, as supervising director, because Larson's key sequence, the forest scene, was the most expensive and technically detailed sequence in the movie, costing $10,000, and Walt Disney wasn't happy that that scene was blowing the budget. Larson himself had replaced Wilfred Jackson, the original supervising director, 
after Jackson had a heart attack. The constant delays and issues creating Sleeping Beauty meant the budget ballooned and a quota system was introduced to keep costs low, with animators required to create a specific number of drawings per day. The two animators who found it the most difficult to adjust to Earl's style were the members of the Nine Old Men, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, who oversaw Flora, Fauna and Merriweather. The characters were originally encouraged by Disney to be homogenous, like the fairy versions of Huey, Dewey and Louie. Thomas and Johnston disagreed and fought for each fairy to have a unique look and personality, and that while they were styled on older women, that each would bring their own looks, and the idea of them fighting over the colour of Aurora's gown mimicked the actual discussions that animators were having. And nowadays, Aurora is uniquely styled in the pink dress, with Cinderella having a more blue version of her dress. Every single element of this movie was strained in the boundaries of its format, and as the budget grew and the goals became even more demanding, the studio was on the verge of going bankrupt. Disney had previously experienced similar commercial setbacks with Pinocchio, Fantasia and Bambi, mostly in part as a result of losing overseas markets during the war. But in this instance, a single movie was on the verge of folding the entire Disney studio. But we're going to talk about financials in a little bit. The announcement of Disney's intention to create Sleeping Beauty coincided with the start of Disneyland's development in the early 1950s. Walt Disney was insistent on having some kind of medieval castle tower over the park and to act as an icon for Disneyland. It would be carried over into everything they do, from their logo to their films and TV shows and everything in between. The castle was originally intended to be known as Fantasyland Castle, with no particular occupants or royal family. There were also rumours floating around that Snow White, the original princess, should have owned the castle. But Sleeping Beauty was in the works and Walt had high hopes for the movie and the castle to be something he would always be associated with. As a marketing employee to attract audiences to the film upon its release, the castle was transformed into Sleeping Beauty's castle. The castle at Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World Florida is actually Cinderella's castle. The castle was also the logo of Walt Disney Pictures, Walt Disney Television, Disney Music Group and Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures from 1985 to 2006. As of Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest in 2006, the logo is now 3D CGI and includes elements of both Sleeping Beauty's castle and Cinderella's castle. But as we're going to come to, even with the attraction of a castle at Disneyland, which opened in 1955, it still really didn't help Sleeping Beauty all that much. But before we go into that, let's segue into the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. This is a part of the podcast where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves for no reason other than he is the best of men. And I can't actually remember if I've done this one before, but I'm just going to go with it and I'm going to do it again if I have done it before. And that simply is that there are several memes and pictures online of Keanu Reeves reimagined as a Disney prince and especially reimagined as Prince Philip. And that really is the best and easiest way that I'm going to link him to this movie. There is really no other way. The music from Tchaikovsky's 1889 ballet, The Sleeping Beauty, was initially discarded as the musical score for Sleeping Beauty, mostly because it would have been incredibly difficult to do and Jack Lawrence and Sammy Fain had signed up to write original songs in April 1952, along with Walter Schumann as the composer. After Avondale became the artistic director, Disney re-evaluated using the Tchaikovsky ballet score, 
and its use would lead to Schumann leaving the project due to creative differences, being replaced by George Bruns. And this was his first composing job for Disney. He'd go on to work with the studio repeatedly, both on animated and live-action projects, till 1974. Bruns worked on the score for three years, studying and experimenting with Tchaikovsky's music to incorporate it. It would have been easier to write an original score, but Tchaikovsky's music was rich in melody and memorability. A musician's strike would hamper the recording of the music in the US, so Disney would send Bruns to Berlin, Germany, to record the remaining music with the Berlin Symphony Orchestra in 1958, where the best state-of-the-art six-channel stereo equipment was available, which also led to the score being Disney's first true stereo soundtrack. Bruns would end up being nominated for four Academy Awards for his work on Disney films, including scoring of a musical picture for Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty premiered at the Fox Wilshire Theatre in Los Angeles on the 29th of January 1959. It was shown in selected cinemas, which were specially equipped to project the film in large format Super Technorama 70 with six-track stereophonic sound which meant it wasn't available as widely as other Disney animated features of the time. At a cost of $6 million, Sleeping Beauty was the most expensive Disney film at the time. It was over twice as expensive as each of the preceding three Disney animated features, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan and Lady and the Tramp. Its $5.3 million box office gross resulted in it being considered a box office bomb on its initial release, and that gross included tickets that were more costly too. So actual bombs on seats were comparatively lower than all of those other Disney movies. Subsequently, Walt Disney lost even more interest in animation as a result of the production costs and box office failure of Sleeping Beauty, as well as the underwhelming performance of most of Disney's 1959-1960 release slate. The company reported an annual loss of $1.3 million for its 1960 fiscal year, its first loss in 10 years, and there were significant layoffs in the animation department. Sleeping Beauty didn't do half as well as hoped, and Walt Disney blamed this on the fact it was a princess movie. No more princess movies would be made until The Little Mermaid in 1989, which coincidentally reversed Disney's ailing fortunes. When the movie was re-released in 1970, this time on standard 35mm film, it earned a further $3.8 million. It would be re-released several times over the years in both 35 and 70mm releases with stereo and mono sound. It would end up grossing $51.6 million from all of its releases, not including its home video release. So eventually it would recoup back its budget and more. In 1986, it became available on VHS, Betamax and Laserdisc and sold over 1 million cassettes. Disney would then do its tactic of returning it to the vault, only to re-release again on DVD in 2003 and again on Blu-ray in 2008 and again in 2014 and again for its 60th anniversary in 2019. It wasn't until the Blu-ray release in 2008 that the full width of the image was actually seen by the public after the initial 70mm release in 1959. At the time of its release, critics were mixed on Sleeping Beauty, with many praising it for its art direction, voice acting and score, but criticising the characters and plot, and that other Disney movies like Snow White contained more heart and humour. The similarities to Snow White and Cinderella were apparent, and many critics favoured Sleeping Beauty less than its predecessors. Retrospectively, it's seen by contemporary critics as being the jewel in Disney's long legacy, 
with some of the most beautiful art direction ever accomplished by the studio, as well as the incorporation of Tchaikovsky's ballet score, the character of Maleficent is widely seen as one of Disney's best villains. While Sleeping Beauty would lose the Academy Award for Best Scoring of a Musical Picture to Porgy and Bess, it would be indicted into the National Film Registry in 2019 as culturally, historically or aesthetically significant. Joining Bambi, Beauty and the Beast, Cinderella, Dumbo, Fantasia, The Lion King, Pinocchio, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Toy Story. It would be later joined by The Little Mermaid, Lady and the Tramp, The Nightmare Before Christmas and Wally. And amazingly, Disney never decided to go back and revisit Aurora and Philip in a direct-to-DVD sequel to Sleeping Beauty. However, they did do a segment of Disney Princess Enchanted Tales, Follow Your Dreams, entitled Keys to the Kingdom, where Aurora is reigning over the kingdom. Mostly, the legacy of Sleeping Beauty continues in Maleficent, its sequel Maleficent Mistress of Evil, and the third movie, which was confirmed in 2021, as well as Maleficent the character in the film series Descendants, where she's played by Kristen Chenoweth and is the leader of the villains. She's also appeared in Once Upon a Time, played by another Kristen, Kristen Bauer von Stratton, and in the video game series Kingdom Hearts as one of the main antagonists. She's also Guillermo del Toro's favourite cinematic Disney dragon. Sleeping Beauty was seen by Walt Disney himself as a princess movie, and fundamentally, it is. You have a beautiful princess, a curse, a handsome prince, and a wicked witch, all your standard princess tropes. Aurora has become one of the central princess characters, the marketing of which has its own standards and goes way beyond this movie itself. But Sleeping Beauty is more than just a princess movie. It remains a touchstone of the era where Disney animation and Walt Disney's lavish attention on his animated films both started to wander in new directions. The animation became cheaper because of Sleeping Beauty's sheer cost, and Walt's ambitions started to spread beyond filmmaking to Disneyland. They were trying to break away from movies of the past and couldn't help but rely on movies like Snow White and Cinderella's phenomenal success to also promote it. The issues behind the scenes leading to dramatically lengthened production only add to the cost. It's really no wonder they had issues with the story and kept changing it, eventually reducing the story to being the least important component of the finished film. Ironically, this desperate, drawn-out approach to scripting and production gave Sleeping Beauty an inadvertent semi-camp pastiche vibe that in addition to being a visually stunning work of animation, sets it apart from other classic princess films. Although Sleeping Beauty's reputation has only grown over the years, there's a lot of questions about how we should evaluate the Disney princess movies in light of our improved knowledge of female representation and how these movies may affect young children's ideas of gender politics. Aurora is indeed a helpless, one-dimensional feminine stereotype with very few lines, but Philip is a hapless, one-dimensional masculine stereotype too. Neither are as important to this story as the title or Disney princess marketing would lead you to believe. Maleficent, in contrast to the female antagonists in Snow White and Cinderella, is not driven by envy. The entire plot of the previous two movies was driven by the jealousy of the princess's appearance, which was a main characteristic of those villains. But Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty is just evil. She doesn't even seem that disappointed to be missing the party, so she uses her exclusion as an excuse to curse an infant. It's understandable why Susan Sarandon's portrayal of the evil queen in Enchanted is so blatantly, wickedly, obviously based on Maleficent. 
While the fairies, flora, fauna and merryweather are typical of the fairy godmother trope, they also actively control the fate of both Aurora and Philip. It's them who helps him kill Maleficent. And arguably, Philip doesn't really actually do all that much. It's them who give him the sword and shield. And it's them who care for Aurora as Briar Rose for 16 years. They're the masterminds of the story and they're categorised as three older, less attractive female characters. For all of Sleeping Beauty's tropes and stereotypes, it's surprisingly progressive for 1959. Not to mention the fact that these three women all live with each other, showing the different family structures that can exist that the previous episode on Mars Knee's mums failed to realise. Sleeping Beauty is easily one of the most beautiful traditionally animated movies ever made, and it's that beauty that's the most important one here. It celebrates its 65th anniversary this year and remains one of Disney's crown jewels. Pioneering technology like the Super Technorama 70mm and the six-track stereo sound made Sleeping Beauty a technical marvel as well as a visual one. Walt Disney himself was aware that the princess formula was starting to struggle by the end of the 1950s, a time of cultural domesticity and mandated happily ever afters. A step towards the deconstruction of the genre, Sleeping Beauty's light-hearted mocking of the genre whose possibilities seem to have rung their course, itself the result of a troubled production, was ultimately responsible for Disney's refusal to do another princess movie, which ultimately led to the genre's revitalisation in 1989 with The Little Mermaid, and the opulent level of animation in Sleeping Beauty wouldn't be matched until Beauty and the Beast. Walt Disney spent the majority of his life pursuing his goal to produce a film that demonstrated the unique qualities that set animation apart from other forms of film. Sleeping Beauty is the most striking illustration of this in many ways. It's a masterpiece of wonder and beauty, but most importantly, it's a fully realised piece of art. And it's unlike anything that had ever been in the history of animation, and still is, even after 65 years. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Sleeping Beauty. And thank you, as always, for your continued support of this podcast. And if you do want to get involved and help this podcast grow, then you can. You could tell a friend or family member about this podcast. You could leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. Or you can find me at Verbal Diorama on social media. I am on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky and Letterboxd. And if you see posts on social media, you can like them, retweet them, etc, etc. And that will always help as well. If you like this episode on Sleeping Beauty, you might also like the following movies slash episodes. Kind of obvious, really, the ones that I'm going to pick. But I haven't done an episode on Cinderella yet. So I can't give that one. But I can offer you episode 81 on Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, episode 140 on The Little Mermaid, and a bit of a curveball but a relevant one, episode 161 on Enchanted. All wonderful movies and all wonderful episodes, even if I do say so myself. As always, give me feedback on my episode recommendations. Let me know what you think. So the next episode, and I wanted to do something for International Women's Day. And I thought, well, what is the best movie to do for International Women's Day? A movie with a very strong, powerful female hero at its centre. And it's a movie that I've wanted to talk about on this podcast for a very long time. So next episode is going to be arguably the best thing that's come out of DC so far, except for Birds of Prey. And that is Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman is a fascinating story because it's a project that languished in development hell for decades. 
And then when DC did decide they were going to bring a cinematic Wonder Woman to the screen, she was cast, but it wasn't actually for Wonder Woman at all. So hopefully you'll join me next episode for the history and legacy of Wonder Woman. And I always say, just by listening to this podcast, you are supporting this podcast. And I am so grateful to you for your support. But if you do want to help this podcast financially, then you can in one of two ways. You could go to verbaldiorama.com slash tips and you could give a one-off tip to this podcast. Or you can sign up to support the show at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And you can join these amazing people. They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Stuart, Nicholas, So, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Stu, Brett, Philip, Michelle and Zenos. You can get in touch with me if you wish. You can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com. Or you could go to verbaldiorama.com and you can find old episodes, new episodes, all the episodes. And you can also fill out the little contact form there as well. And you can also find bits that I do over at filmstories.co.uk as well. And finally. Oh no, not pink. Make it blue. Mary Weather. Make it pink. Blue. Bye. Movie should know.